Susan Glazer reported yesterday that the amusement parks in Ohio have very low attendance. Who needs roller coasters when you have the Ohio State House? It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We did a special episode of this podcast yesterday to talk about the bribery scandal that is rocking Columbus, but there's plenty more to talk about, and that's what we'll be doing today. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm here with my colleagues Jane Cahoon, Chris Warnowski, and a special guest, State House reporter Andrew Tobias. Ready to get started, everybody? Of course. Yep. Let's go. Okay. Is the $60 million first energy bribery case involving Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder the biggest bribery case in Ohio history? Andrew Tobias, I bet it's the biggest bribery case you've dealt with in your career. It must have been interesting to be in Columbus yesterday as this was all breaking. Yeah, um, I left the House yesterday thinking that I was going to the State House to cover what I thought was an important piece of election legislation. And Lo and behold, I found myself on a dirt road searching for Larry Householder's farm <laughs> after I heard that FBI agents were there. So it was a weird turn of events for me. Um, yeah, the U.S. attorney yesterday who uh, announced the charges said it was a record uh, for a bribery case in Ohio. And I'm always kind of skeptical of that because, you know, government officials like to say that everything's the best and the biggest. But $60 million is a ton of money. And even if you kind of break it down into what Householder allegedly personally enriched himself, because that big number is the uh, the money that First Energy allegedly funneled into the campaign operation that ultimately got Householder elected speaker. And then he, in exchange, offered uh, basically pushed push through the bailout to fund uh, First Energy's nuclear assets. But Householder himself got $400,000 uh, allegedly to that he used to settle personal lawsuits and pay for work on his Florida house, which I didn't know existed, by the way, and uh, to pay down his credit card debt. So, I mean, I wasn't around for the county corruption scandal, Chris and Jane, you guys were here back then, but uh, it seems like a lot to me, even if you look at the $400,000, I mean, but yeah, it's it's just, you know, yesterday, it just, I keep saying this over the course of this year, um, you know, with the election being canceled, uh, me basically being stuck in my house for going on five months now, uh, I just, it's, it's the, one of the craziest things that's ever happened in my career. Well, Columbus is always rife with stories. I mean, if you think back to the gerrymandered districts where they're meeting in secret in hotel rooms, there's always shenanigans in Columbus. But by any measure, this is a jaw dropper. I mean, $60 million. You talk about the Cuyahoga County corruption. I mean, Jimmy DeMora got some pine trees, fake pine trees or, and a, a palm trees and a pizza oven. I mean, it's like this is this is just staggering amounts of money that First Energy is accused of, of pouring into a machine to subvert the democratic process. I, I just how does life get back to anything resembling normal? In the state house, no one in Ohio is going to trust anything they do because the public interest was completely subverted by this process. And it reminds me a little bit of the CoinGate scandal, which I was in college back then. And again, this might be something that you guys remember better than I do. But in that case, you know, you had the governor of Ohio plead guilty to a crime. And I think he left office as Bob Taft with like an eight percent approval rating or something like that. And we saw that year which granted the Iraq war was going on in the background. Um, and that was a wave year for election, uh, wave year election for Democrats in 2006. But Democrats basically took over the state government for the first time, what's proved to be the only time in like 25 years. I mean, we saw a total sea change in politics back then. And, and CoinGate was, for people who don't know, it involved uh, improprieties about certain state investments being held uh, in rare coins kind of uh, funneled through a uh, 
a big Republican donor and stuff like that. But that was that just seems like peanuts compared to this. So, I mean, I'm not I've been conditioned to some extent to not expect big changes out of the Ohio legislature and the state house in general. And, and God knows, you know, what's with everything that's going on right now. But uh, if, if CoinGate turned into, you know, a uh, total takeover of state government, um, they, there are some ethics reforms that were passed in the aftermath. I just wonder what, what the fallout for this one, this one's going to be. Well, well, you do have a serious question on what is Dave Yost been doing? He's been chasing phantoms in democratic Cuyahoga County while the biggest scandal in the history of the state is right under his nose and he had nothing to do with it. But I'm more interested in hearing your perspective about Mike DeWine. He is, of course, riding some of the highest popularity approval ratings we've ever seen for a governor. People still largely approve of what he did with the coronavirus. But Mike DeWine, while he is in no way tainted by the corrupt part of the nuclear bailout that involves 60 million from First Energy, he signed the bill and he was a big proponent of it. Does this seriously cripple his credibility? I mean, he signed the damn thing when it subverted the interest of the public. Yeah, something that struck me yesterday about some of those the statements that came out in the afternoon from DeWine and other big Republican office holders who wanted to say how shocked they were by the allegations and how, um, I mean, I think part of it is that householder because he's now been ordered by a federal court to not have contact with potential witnesses, which could conceivably be anybody in the legislature. Um, so, you know, you could argue that he's just been rendered uh, incapable of doing his job kind of from a process standpoint. But But the whole thing was cast in this language of how shocking and how much of a violation of public trust it was and all of that stuff. The thing was, is that the, the whole, the broad outline of this scheme was reported on repeatedly and was well known by anybody who, you know, there's always things that I kind of know as a reporter that I can't necessarily report. So even if you kind of go into that realm, uh, when DeWine signed that bill, he knew that Larry Householder had gotten himself elected on this and that First Energy had funded uh, his campaign to do it. And so, I mean, yes, there's there's stuff in there that is, you know, gets into more personal enrichment and that kind of stuff. But, you know, certainly there are a lot of people who uh, who were part of this and, and they may not bear personal responsibility for the specific legal acts described in the complaint or as described by the complaint, but they did play a role in it. And so I just I think that's a question that people do have to wrestle with. I don't think there's, you know, an objective answer to that, but still. Although, you know. it, but it was a stinky deal every step of the way. And you're right. This was not something we knew about and didn't didn't have the juice to report. We reported on it and editorialized on it every step of the way. It stunk to the high heavens. It was a gigantic corporate bailout on the backs of Ohioans. It trashed the green energy movement in the state, which had economic de- development ramifications. And in even though DeWine isn't corrupt, he did. He did sign it, knowing how stinky a deal it was. And I'm going to be curious to see one how he reacts to this. Now, does he seek to repeal the damn thing? And two, does it stick to him? It's going to, going to be interesting. I, I do want to add uh, one implication of this possibility is that you know, despite having sky high approval ratings, Dewine's kind of been thwarted by the Republican legislature led by Householder. They've been passing stuff to try to limit his authority on health orders and. They've been kind of messing around with them on wearing masks or reopening the government and stuff like that. Well, I mean, they're not going to be doing anything like that for a while. Uh, at least it seems like uh, they're going to be crippled by this. So to some extent, DeWine's going to have a freer hand. And, and so he's somebody who's very pragmatic. And I wonder if maybe he'll feel, um, you know, again, it goes back to he did sign that bill. He was a supporter of it. So 
Um, but maybe he's going to be more liberated, I guess, to do things that he thinks is right, or at least is not going to be blocked in some of the things that, that, that they've been doing from a public health standpoint. I do want to point out the incredible hypocrisy of Larry Householder yesterday. This guy who refused to wear a mask when he was overseeing the house, he comes out of court with an N95 mask. You're not even supposed to wear those if you're not a doctor or nurse. And the bum comes out with an N95 mask. <laughs> yes, Seth Richardson made a joke on Twitter. It was like, oh, sorry, Larry Householder, I misunderstood you. Your position on masks while they're not good for fighting coronavirus they are good for hiding your face after you've been arraigned on a 60 million dollar <laughs> okay you're listening to this week in the cle what is ohio house speaker larry householder accused of doing in the massive indictment involving a 60 million first energy bribery scheme jane cahoon in many other indictments that we see involving corruption, you see a whole raft of charges and bills of particulars. In the end, this is a pretty simple charge. So what, what exactly is the crime that's alleged here with Larry Householder? What, and what did he do that the feds say qualify it as a crime? Well, I think generally they characterize it as as racketeering, but he, he's accused of doing a lot of things. But but basically, he's he's implicated as the person who engineered this whole massive scheme, and that scheme allowed him to rise again as House Speaker, along with his favored House candidates who who would win election, then to pass this billion dollar bailout to help First Energy with its nuclear plants. And then to make sure that that bailout was not overturned by citizens seeking a, a referendum. And he did all this basically by funneling money through this secretive account, a 501c4 called Generation Now. And First Energy poured millions of dollars into that account. And that was used to fund all of those efforts, as well as to enrich Householder and his associates. There is some description in the the very entertaining indictment of Householder playing politics to try and get people in the Senate to pass the bill and putting the arm on members of the House to pass the bill. That's not illegal. You're you're allowed in politics to go to your colleagues and try and get them to to pass the bills. So the description of that, I'm not quite sure how that fits into what was going on. There's one point where he's lobbying I think it was a senator to pass the bill and then later is working to get text messages about that deleted. And I wasn't quite sure why, because pretty much politics as usual to say, hey, I really need your vote. Right. Um, and maybe yeah, I think one of those messages, though, and that might have been a rep, not a senator. You think it was a senator? Anyway, I think he said something along the lines of, you know, I'm not going to forget this or or, you know, words that sounded a little bit more threatening than just <laughs> oh, come on man every politician in his history does it. look i need your vote if you don't do it the next time you need something i'm not going to do it mm-hmm. i mean that's just basic politics no right but this 60 thing... million dollars being put into your secret slush fund and then using it to subvert the whole process you know that clearly crosses the line into criminality right but... and they bribed people during this you know not not the necessarily the lawmakers but but people like to to thwart the referendum campaign they they bribed all sorts of people according to the criminal complaint it wouldn't be illegal though for householder to take out ads 
lobbying against the the referendum effort. It's it's the way he did it that makes it criminal. The the moving of the slush fund around and the bribery of people to to act on his behalf. Yeah, and this is Andrew Tobias again. But uh, some of the things, if you read the kind of between the lines of the complaint, they I think they made a point to try to highlight when their actors in in this whole thing were trying to cover their tracks and whether that was concealing the source of funds whether that was householder telling somebody to delete a text message. There's another instance that I won't get into because I don't want to steal anybody else's thunder. But so I think they're going to say that, you know, why would you hide something unless it's wrong? And I think also a part of it is that this uh, Generation Now, which is the name of the political nonprofit that First Month Energy funneled a lot of this money through, there are rules in in campaign finance laws, which, by the way, I think are incredibly weak. I never really uh, functionally think that anybody does anything about enforcing them. But you are not allowed to coordinate if you are a 501c4, you're allowed to spend money on stuff, but you can't coordinate with people on the other side. And so, I mean, I think that, uh, again, like, I, I agree with you that a lot of this just does kind of seem like politics as usual. But I think that's the kind of case that the government's probably trying to build. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who is Matt Borges? And what is he accused of in the massive indictment describing a $60 million first energy bribery scheme? Chris Warnowski, Matt Borges has been in the news a lot over the last seven, eight years. He was the head of the Ohio Republican Party, a close ally of John Kasich. Uh, he looks like he's going down here. What do we know about him? What did he specifically do that amounts to a crime, according to the indictment? Well, well, yeah, right. Welcome back to the news, Matt Borges. Um, he, <laughs> we talked a little bit about him yesterday, and 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 just to give you like a quick rundown, um, he was something of a political wonder boy back in 1999. At the age of 27, he became the uh, chief of staff for then Ohio State Treasurer Joe Dieter. Within five years of taking that job, he found himself in court being accused of building out. Uh, state securities businesses to a short list of politically generous brokers. Um, He ended up pleading guilty to a misdemeanor and paid a small fine, but he went on to have a pretty good career. He, you know, he worked in the office of the vice president. He's, he managed the camp, like the state auditor campaign of Dave Yost back in 2014. Um, He even became the Ohio Republican party chairman in this particular story. He, he's a lobbyist. He, he sort of, but the um, federal authorities sort of paint him as a middleman uh, working on behalf of First Energy, but also, you know, sort of working with this quote unquote householder enterprise to sort of move money around and move money back and forth. And weeks after the Ohio lawmakers passed the billion dollar bailout for First Energy, Good government groups and legislative watchdogs began pushing back and they talked about this referendum that would allow residents to vote on the measure. And to prevent that, Borges sought out someone working for the referendum campaign and asked for inside information on the group for a price. And it turns out the person that he was talking to was an informant for the FBI. And he's accused of paying that informant $15,000. And he also threatened to, quote, blow up the person's home if word of the payment ever got out, according to the, the court. Okay, document. so that, that would be a crime then, yes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> also, but back in like in 2019, he set up a company called 17 Consulting Group, and he received about $1.6 million in wire transfers from Generation Now, which was kind of the shell nonprofit that was working as a go-between between, between 
uh, First Energy and all of the the different places that First Energy's money kind of ended up. Um, and the filing said that uh, the board just called First Energy's flow of money into Generation Now monopoly money, and he made uh, more than three hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars from First Energy's uh, money. Uh, I think it says here. Yeah, that's 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 yeah. So he made. You gotta love this man. Monopoly money, bags of cash. <laughs> I mean, these guys were just so brazen. It's always amazing. Andrew Tobias, uh, Matt Borges, I think is pretty well known as a reporter's friend. A lot of reporters would talk to him fairly regularly. I don't know if you had much of a reporter relationship with him, but does it surprise you to see the allegations of this guy who has been, you know, pretty pretty accessible all these years? Yeah, so I'm still trying to wrap my brain around the elements of this that were sort of like we were saying before, politics as usual versus when it kind of falls over into being a, you know, a a criminal act. And so the thing that really pops there for me is that that $15,000 bribe, I mean, he uh, made clear to that informant, like, hey, don't tell anybody I told you this um, and, and stuff like that. You know, I think so I can picture him saying like, yeah, I'll blow up your house if you if you tell anybody about this, like as a, <laughs> as a joke, you know, like Borges is an affable guy. I have known him for years. I, I, you know, I remember I covered the Republican National Convention in 2016, which Borges, by the way, helped bring to Ohio. And um, I was at a meeting in Florida, kind of like the Republican Party a few months before. And I wrote a story specifically about I could see reporters kind of go to those things. And you kind of just like roam around and, and try to sort like uh ambush people to talk to you and otherwise it's pretty boring and i I just saw reporter after reporter see borges and make a beeline towards him because they knew that he's somebody that will talk so i mean uh again the whole thing is just surreal for me in in reading the complaint i can see matt saying that stuff you know and and it's just uh it, it does sound it sounds more sinister i guess when you kind of frame it up the way that it is and i you know i mean that's and that's that's what's really interesting to me i i'm still trying to think about all of this with the feds having secured clearly some of his text messages, do you think there are any reporters worried what the feds are reading in their communication <laughs> with Borges? I mean, I've called all these guys, so I don't know. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's, nobody has ever offered me a $15,000 bribe. So I guess that's all I'll say. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Who is Neil Clark and what is he accused of in the massive indictment describing a $60 million first energy bribery scheme? Andrew, there were names that we knew of in the indictment, obviously, with Larry Householder and Matt Borges. But then there are people I think reporters know that the public is not quite aware of. Neil Clark is one of those. Who is he and what is he accused of doing? So Neil has been a real mainstay of lobbying in Columbus for probably going on 30 years. Uh, he used to work as a uh, the Senate budget director um, in the legislature in the 80s, back when he was you know, in government and he walked through that revolving door and got into lobbying, as so many do. And uh, so he's somebody that I can just say as a reporter, I look to him as a resource sometimes because he's very knowledgeable about the actual workings of government, what fun goes where and what tricks people use to try to cover things up as far as like, you know, budget tricks and stuff like that. But he is um, somebody who's just been a power player in Columbus for a long time. And he's had his up and th- ups and downs. And he's also had his ups and downs with Householder. So, um, you know, I, I really liked uh, last year I did a story when Householder kind of returned to power. And I, I looked back at what people said about him when he left office back in the 2000s. And I can't remember what Neil was quoted as saying, but something like democracy didn't work with Larry Householder. And I'm so glad he's gone and that kind of stuff. And then I quoted him my story saying like, hey, Larry Householder is great. Like, I think he's a thoughtful guy. 
And that's because Neil and, and, and Householder uh, got involved with, with trying to kind of basically engineer uh, Householder's return to be the speakership. So in this case, uh, and one more thing I'll say, I, I, uh, a, a former longtime state reporter uh, would call Neil Clark the Prince of Darkness. Uh, and, you know, he, he would answer the phone and say, I'd say, how are you, Neil? And he's like, oh, well, you can't kill what's truly evil or something like that. And he kind of embraced this kind of like villainous image that he had. And it was kind of a joke. And so a lot of the stuff you read the complaint, he's talking about, uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the hitman, And like, you know, uh, well, you, you know, the thing about pay to play is you can't do it too much or else people notice. And it's just I can see him saying these things. You know, it's it's almost it's kind of a joke. Uh, it's sort of not a joke. I mean, this he's sort of being honest about how state government works sometimes. So I guess to actually just say what he did. Um, yeah, what's know, his crime? So he, he's accused of racketeering or conspiracy to commit racketeering like the other defendants in this. But basically, he was representing himself as being, uh, you know, Larry Householder's right hand man. He was shaking down people for their votes, which is called whipping. He was actually trying to get get votes for this House Bill six. He was uh, directing strategy for this stuff. And I think also he was just kind of saying the quiet parts out loud that sort of helped prosecutors and federal agents to connect the dots on this. He was just in the room for a lot of stuff and he's a bombastic guy. And, and he was just kind of saying, you know, this, this is how you do pay to play guys. <laughs> like, so in that case, uh, <laughs> I mean, he actually used those words, pay to play. I mean, it's like, here's a red flag to anybody listening on my, uh, on my phone or my text messages, pay to play. I mean, it's just, but some the, of this is just what lobbyists do. I mean, he represents, uh, some really big interests, including nursing homes, uh, the alcoholic beverage industry, which is heavily regulated in Ohio. In the past, he's rec- he represented the electronic classroom of tomorrow, also known as ECOT, which was this charter school that went down. My God, he really is the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did he represent cigarette companies? I mean, it's like, he's like that Aaron Eckhart guy in the movie. He is a little right. bit like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's this week in the CLE. Who is Juan Cespedes and what is he accused of in the massive indictment describing a $60 million first energy bribery scheme in the state house? Jane Cahoon, this is another guy that I don't think the public has heard much about, but he actually is pretty prominent. He's served on some pretty major boards on a statewide basis. So who is he and what is he accused of in this bribery scheme? Well, he's another lobbyist based in Columbus, and he's described by federal authorities as a crucial middleman because he was contracted by First Energy Solutions, I believe, um, and he he really uh, helped ba- helped First Energy bankroll what's described as householders' corrupt enterprise to to funnel millions of dollars into this generation now dark dark money group controlled by householder that was used to, you know, not only bring him back to power, but to, to pass the billion dollar bailout of the nuclear plants and to make sure that law stood up to a, to a referendum. He's from Lorraine originally, and, and he co-founded a firm called the Oxley Group. And that's, I think, uh, that group was, was hired by First Energy to do so-called government relations here. He's a member of the Ohio Civil Rights Commission. So, and uh, like the others, he's accused of conspiracy to commit racketeering. Think about that, though. He's a member of the Civil Rights Commission, and he is accused of engaging in an effort to impede people from taking advantage of their constitutional rights in Ohio to try and overturn 
a legislative bill. I mean, Are you seeing I, some irony there, Chris? Well, it's, it's just like, come on, how can you sit, take the oath to be on that commission and then secretly be subverting the entire democratic process? I mean, talk about villainy. That's really bad. And the complaint says he, he was paid pretty handsomely for his efforts. Uh, First Energy paid him $227,000, and then he got $600,000 from Householders Associates through payments passed through another company. You know, we're all, we're, as we talk about this, you know, it's it's partly sport for journalists when this kind of thing goes wrong. But it really does kind of make you sick just how much these guys did to subvert our democratic process in Ohio. It's, 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 it's really a pathetic Ohio chapter. It's this week in the CLE. Who is Jeff Longstreth and what is he accused of in the massive indictment describing a $60 million first energy bribery scheme? Chris Warnowski, Jeff Longstreth is another name I think most people are not familiar with. So let's talk about who he is, what his background is, and what his role in the Larry Householder bribery scheme is alleged to be. So the complaint unsealed Tuesday sort of describes uh, Jeff as Larry Householder's longtime political strategist. And it says that he was pretty instrumental in uh, the effort to get this uh, $1.3 billion bailout passed. And he's accused of accepting more than $5 million in bribes from First Energy in exchange for his efforts on behalf of House Bill 6. And he and those efforts really sort of began in earnest in 2017 when he incorporated Generation Now, which is the 501c4 that investigators sort of identified as the primary funnel uh, for the bribes from First Energy through this householder enterprise, quote unquote. Householder sort of controlled Generation Now, but. Uh, Jeff was the signatory on both of its bank accounts and transferred money out of them. So, for example, he would transfer ten and a half million dollars from Generation Now to his firm, JPL and Associates, as well as another four point four million dollars through indirect means. And and what some of that money was used for was to sort of advance householders and first energy's political interest and and pay personal benefits to enterprise members and associates and some of those political interests included the 2018 campaigns of 21 candidates for the Ohio House of Representatives that the enterprise believed could ultimately help support householder in his bid to become the speaker of the house and and sure enough, not only did Householder become the Speaker of the House, but all but two of the people that they backed financially um, voted for House Bill 6 and ultimately, you know, got that bailout legislation through. Uh, through so, the so based on all that, that it's going to be pretty hard for him, Jeff Longstreth, to argue this is just politics. I mean, we talked earlier and, and said that you know, that that lobbying legislators to vote for your bill and putting the arm on and wheeling and dealing is kind of politics as usual. But, you know, setting up the slush fund, <laughs> orchestrating the money coming into the slush fund, spending the money out of the slush fund, you're going to have a hard time trying to argue that, hey, this is the way it's done, right? Yeah. I mean, when your name's on the checks, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to have to <laughs> pretend there's plausible deniability here. So, yeah, I mean, this is... It, 
he he is about as central to this as householder is it, it appears you know so it, it, it's it, yeah i mean it's 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 going to be difficult to sort of you know if, if his strategy is to play dumb i it's it's going to be a tough road andrew tobias with longstreth with the other guys that are charged in this so many people were aware of this scheme. You got to think, what were these guys thinking? There's no way you're not going to get caught. As brazen as they are and with their long history of playing outside the rules, they all knew what they're doing is a grave criminal act. What do you think they're thinking? I mean, I th- I think they might have been thinking that they're just kind of operating in these gray, area- gray areas of campaign finance law and in corporate contributions. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, quid pro quos that happen in politics, but you just don't say if you do this, then I will do that. There's a way to do it in a, in a manner that's not that explicit. I mean, and this is something that's gone back and since the beginning of, of American politics. So, I mean, uh, again, it all adds up and you take a step back and you kind of think about what happened, which again is just fundamentally a large corporation helping elect politicians who in exchange delivered them a billion dollar bailout. I mean, uh, you can make that case, but I, I think that, you know, when you're, when you work in politics, um, you're very concerned about winning. Um, you know, depending on who you are, you might uh, be more comfortable with kind of pushing the edges of, of what's what's permissible. But but I, I think that just sort of the culture and politics of, of how, uh, you know, corporate contributions are uh, permissible after Citizens United because of how weak enforcement is. I, I think to some extent they probably just thought they were just playing the rules of the game. Although I would reject the argument that they didn't know they were outside the lines of the law, but we'll have to see how it plays out in court. It's this week in the CLE. How is it that Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder could operate and fund in complete secrecy with $60 million or roughly passing through it and no one in Ohio being the wiser? Is this dark money? Is it the result of sleazy laws passed in Ohio? What gives? Andrew, that was one of the most, Andrew Tobias, this was one of the most stunning things in the indictment is the ease with which this massive block of money could alter the political landscape and subvert the interests of Ohioans with no real way of of tracking it. So, so the term dark money refers to political money that's basically structured in such a way that makes it at least difficult to figure out who funded it. And, and increasingly, it, it becomes impossible. We were able to track some of the spending uh, in real time and then after the fact. And, and some of the strategy, by the way, is that by the time the reporters or the public figures out, you know, whether it's doing the legwork or disclosures being filed on, on schedules and that, that, that kind of thing that sort of it, it just kind of draws out and dilutes the sort of interest that people have in the story. And so in this case, you know, you could track that stuff. It's a constellation of uh, campaign finance disclosures in the state and federal level. It's, it's tax forms. It's, you know, when you place a political ad on, on broadcast media, you have to disclose that to the FCC. Uh, First Energy Solutions, uh, actually, um, First Energy, the parent company of this whole thing, was going through bankruptcy, and they had to disclose things on a schedule to a bankruptcy court. So you can kind of connect the dots and all of this stuff. But like, it looks like that chart that the U.S. attorney held up at the press conference yesterday showing this, this criminal scheme, and it makes it look like it's, you know, this organized crime effort. Uh, it's very complicated. And um, part of this is, uh, like I said in the previous segment, it's it's sort of in the aftermath of Citizens United, which was that Supreme Court case that said that corporations are people and have a right to free speech just like people do, and free speech equals money. So corporations, there are all kinds of things that they can do in the federal law to spend money on on politics, to spend unlimited amounts of money on politics and, and not disclose a lot of it. 
Um, and then in Ohio, in the aftermath of that, and this is something I plan to write about and, and look into more, but um, uh, it's arguable that in Ohio that direct corporate contributions are allowed. There's a there's a ruling out there by the Ohio Elections Commission that after Citizens United, basically it nullified laws that exist in the books that prevent direct cor- corporate contributions. So, I mean, this is something that, you know, um, I uh, spoke on a panel at the Cleveland Film Festival, I think it was a couple of years ago for a documentary produced in Montana about dark money. and um, it just, I, I walked away from that, you know, watching it again, to me, who's like immersed in this stuff, it makes me mad. Um, as a reporter, you know, I, I want to try to figure this stuff out, but it, it struck me just how angry the people in the audience were. And, and I know that, so it's, you know, I'm here talking about this and it's charts and it's 501c4s and it's super PACs and it's LLCs and all that stuff. But when it comes down to it, you know, I've, I've taken away that people are really frustrated with the money that's out there in ads and they don't, you know, you say that you're, uh, one of the groups I set up was Ohioans for Energy Security, but really they're, they're saying that the repeal effort was the Chinese communist government trying to steal your information. Well, actually, it was funded by a utility company that was trying to protect their bailout, you know, so it's just and I think <laughs> although, people, although, people, although we all knew that. I mean, we couldn't prove it, but there was only one company that benefited from all those sleazy ads. We We tried to get First Energy to fess up and say, you're paying for this and they refused to do it. And now we know that they were the sleazy backer of that thing. But if you're a member of the public, I think people suspect things like that. But I think between being busy and not having the time to figure it out and then also just kind of being cynical about the whole process, they just assume that everything's crooked. I mean, I I just I think it does have this really insidious effect in terms of promoting cynicism and, and apathy, honestly, about this kind of stuff in the public. So is the only way to fix that then on the national level because it was a U.S. Supreme Court ruling? There are things that the state government can do. Um, during the Ohio Secretary of State's race in 2018, the Democratic candidate was very uh, outspoken about forcing nonprofits, if you spend money in Ohio, that you have to open your books, um, things like that. And, and I think that Frank LaRose, who's the Republican who won the race, is sympathetic to those kinds of things. But I think that he has, hasn't really aggressively gone after it. I think he's been focused on other issues and maybe he has more considerations about kind of picking fights with, you know, with other Republicans and trying to be diplomatic about that kind of thing. So, you know, some of it does go back to the federal level, but I do think there are things that could be done at the state level too. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who are the 10 Democrats in the House who voted for the corrupt bailout of First Energy's nuclear plants? And are any of them from Northeast Ohio? Jane Cahoon, it kind of boggles the mind that Democrats have some complicity in this sleazy deal. Uh, who are they? And are they local? <laughs> yes. It, some some of this really is is not a surprise. For instance, you have John Rogers from Men Around the Lake, who's, who represents large portions of Lake County where the, the Perry nuke plant sits. So it stands to reason that that he wants to protect jobs of his constituents and he would have voted for it. Um, we also have Joe Miller of Amherst, uh, which that might be kind of a puzzler because I think he's a green energy supporter. And we also have um, Terrence Upchurch from, from Cleveland. Now, he, he explained his vote by saying, you know, well, they made certain concessions like, uh, home weatherization guarantees for low-income people. And I think he and other Democrats thought that they had won some concessions in the final bill. Also, don't forget that elements of organized labor were behind House Bill 6. So, you know, a lot of Democrats are very pro-labor. So it, that's another reason why maybe some of this 
isn't as surprising. The other Northeast Ohioans were uh, Tavia Galonsky of the Akron area and John Patterson, whose district includes Ashtabula County and part of Geauga County. And then um, the other ones were Richard Brown of Canal Winchester, Jack Sarah of Bel Air, Catherine Ingram of Cincinnati, Lisa Sebecki of Toledo, and Thomas West of Canton. So do you think they all feel like stooges this morning? Possibly. I mean, well, let's not forget a lot of Republicans voted for it, too. So perhaps they all feel that way. But as we have said before, you know, a lot of this, it was known that this deal was stinky. We didn't know the extent of it until this criminal complaint was unsealed on Tuesday. But everybody knew this was kind of stinky. So I I think they knew that when they voted for it and they have to live with that. Yeah. I mean, that's the striking thing is I've said it before. This completely subverted the best interests of Ohioans. These elected officials that want to represent us, they go in there and they vote for a stinky deal. And, I, you know, Andrew Tobias had talked about this earlier. It's going to be very interesting if when it comes to election time, if there's some hell to pay. We have very gerrymandered districts, so it would take a lot. But this is a lot. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why didn't the feds charge Householder and his cronies with civil rights violations for illegally impeding the people trying to put the corrupt First Energy nuclear plant ballot bailout on the ballot? And is there any way to restore the rights to these people that they were deprived of? Chris Renaski, we're not going to answer this question, but I but I <laughs> but I but I think it's worth discussing because in Ohio, we have in our Constitution the ability to go out, collect signatures and put stuff that the legislature did on the ballot if we disagree with it. And right. people took advantage of that. And based on what we read in this indictment of Larry Householder and this group, we now know that First Energy spent millions of dollars to illegally subvert that process. So so why isn't that? Why wouldn't that be a civil rights violation? Again, we're not going to answer it. I just wanted to talk about it. One of those rhetorical questions. No, yes. they, like one of the one of the things that they are accused of doing, which is it seems like almost like a Nixonian dirty trick kind of thing, which was they. Oh, good analogy. They took a lot of money and. They went out and they basically created conflicts of interest with these pollsters. So they went out and paid a bunch of money to pollsters so they couldn't be hired by the people who were supporting the ballot initiative to overturn the first energy bailout. So effectively, they, they spent a bunch of money on pollsters to go out and do absolutely nothing, which, you know, which you could argue made, made it difficult for, for the groups that were opposing the bailout to go out and collect signatures. And, you know, it, it, is that illegal? I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's certainly sleazy as, 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 as politics go, but, you know, does it impede people's civil rights? I, I don't know. I, you know, it's, 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 it's something that certainly wasn't addressed in this portion of this criminal investigation. But, you know, it's, it's possible that this could be something that is looked at in the future. And, and this okay. is Andrew Tobias. Um, my favorite thing from, from the whole effort to uh, prevent the repeal effort was part of what they did is they hired people whose job it was. So to try to repeal something, you have to collect hundreds of thousands of signatures from voters. And so if you've ever been at a library or a concert or something, and somebody comes up with you trying to ask you to sign a clipboard, you know how awkward it is for somebody to approach you in public 
while the other side hired people to follow the petitioners around and kind of like try to butt in and shout at the people who, as they were considering whether to sign this petition and cause them to run away. So it's just, they call it petition blocking. And like Chris said, I don't know if that's illegal, but it sure is crazy. Like if you just sort of think about it. And so it's just, I just, I learned so much from this and that's just one of the, the weird things that kind of went into all of this. Okay. It was worth a discussion. It's this week in the CLE. Okay. We went much longer than we normally do, but this is a bigger story than we normally discuss. So I'm happy to have had an extra 10 minutes. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody for listening to this week in the CLE. We will return tomorrow.